This week on Life and Faith. How can I convince myself I'm a worthy person? Well, I'm going to work all the time. Then I know that I'm doing something that is highly valued in my society, and so I must be a worthy person. It's just too hard. It would be easier to just go back to work tomorrow. And those were days when it wasn't dangerous at all to pick up hitchhikers. It was pretty clear that something wasn't quite right. He almost becomes a student of death. Welcome to Life and Faith from CPX. I'm Simon Smart. And I'm Justine Toe. Now, what is burnout? It's one of those terms that sounds familiar, but it's hard to define. But it seems to capture a sense of exhaustion, a loss of motivation for whatever it is you're supposed to be doing. Things feel meaningless. And in the way we talk about it, burnout is most often linked to work. Now, plenty of us would feel burnout because of the pandemic. Medical staff on the front lines, parents juggling work and homeschooling. I think you can relate to this, Justine. Essential workers trying to dodge COVID at the same time that they're trying to earn a living. But we have an interview today with someone who's gone through their own experience of burnout and come out the other side of it. Now, tell us about him, Justine. Yeah, so his name is Jonathan Malesic. He's the author of The End of Burnout, Why Work Drains Us and How to Build Better Lives. And I remember learning about his work last year in the throes of the pandemic. He'd written this opinion piece in the New York Times that was headlined, The pandemic reminded us we exist to do more than just work. Mm. And I was really gripped by this um, also because I was thinking about achievement addiction stuff at the same time. So it really spoke to me. Jonathan had always dreamed of being a college professor. And once he became one, he got tenure, which as far as I understand means it's a permanent position, right? And this is highly prized because that's really difficult to get in the US. And there's a lot of competition, as you can imagine. So what do you think happens? He gets his dream job, but then it doesn't quite work out the way that he'd hoped. So here he is in his own words. I had been a professor for eight or so years before things started to take a turn for the worse. For several years, the reality kind of lived up to the dream. I enjoyed my classes and I was doing the thing that I most wanted to do and exercising the talents that I had spent years cultivating. And while I was doing that, one of the key teaching and research interests I had was the range of moral and spiritual questions that are raised by our work. But at some point, that question of why work became much more than academic for me. It really became existential for reasons that I didn't fully understand. But what I found was that I would wake up in the morning just filled with dread. Uh, My thought was always, you know, not this again. And I would often, you know, lie in bed for hours trying to avoid going to work. And sometimes I would get out of bed and spend a couple hours, you know, getting ready and then have to go back to sleep. I was that exhausted. And like I said, I didn't know what was going on. And once I got to class, I was increasingly frustrated uh, with myself and my students. My temper became much shorter with colleagues and friends and family members. And I felt like my work wasn't accomplishing anything. It was no longer the dream job that I 
had once had. So I tried a bunch of things to fix the problem. I went to talk therapy. I went on antidepressants. And they helped a little, but not a lot. Uh, they were not a decisive change. And so I took a more radical step of taking a semester of unpaid leave, hoping that this would be enough rest that I'd be able to go back and do my job with the kind of eagerness that I once had. And the rest helped for about a week. I went back uh, after a semester and nothing about the job had changed. And so the exhaustion returned. Whatever I was going through was not the kind of exhaustion that rest can cure. And then I felt just incredibly despondent. Like there's, oh, well, there's no solution to this. But as chance would have it, my wife, who is also an academic, got a job offer at a university thousands of miles away. And that was my way out. There was, there was no way that uh, she could take the job and I would remain in mine. And so that was my opportunity to quit. And I did. And it worked. Well, let me ask you, because in the book, you have a very arresting image of burnout as being like the experience of trying to stand on two stilts. Can you um, explain that image to us and how it captures your definition of burnout? Yeah, the definition of burnout that I use is that it's the experience of being stretched for a long time between your ideals for work and the reality of your job. So when your ideals and your reality are well aligned, uh, and if you think about them as a pair of stilts, one stilt is your ideals for work, the other is the reality of your job or your working conditions. When those are in alignment, you can move forward. You can do what you're asked to do, and you can do it without too much strain and, and unhappiness. But when there starts to be a gap between them, when ideals and reality depart from each other, you're being pulled in two directions at once. And the strain of that makes it, well, first of all, it's just exhausting to try to wrench them back into alignment. But the strain of that causes exhaustion, it causes frustration, and you can't move forward. And in fact, you might fall down. That experience is burnout. Yeah, I think it's a very vivid image. Uh, but you do say in the book as well that there is a plethora of ways of defining burnout and this is part of the problem. We vibe it. We don't really have a, have a clear, systematic way of understanding it. But you found yourself taking something called the Maslach Burnout Inventory. Can you tell us what it measures and what your experience of taking that was? Yeah. So the Maslach Burnout Inventory is a 22-question survey developed by Christina Maslach, who is the godmother of burnout research. And it's been used for decades in research on burnout. I should be clear, it's not a diagnostic tool, though I certainly have used it in self-diagnosis more than once. But yeah, it's a 22-question survey that tries to give the test taker a score on three dimensions, so the three main aspects of burnout, which are exhaustion, which I think many of us are familiar with, you know, the questions are like, I feel energized or not uh, by my work. The second dimension is cynicism or depersonalization. Those are feelings of anger, frustration. That is when you start 
treating the people that you work with, whether they're your coworkers or your customers, or in my case, my students, as less than fully human. You start seeing them more as problems than as full people. And then the third dimension is a sense of reduced effectiveness at work. It's that feeling that your work isn't accomplishing anything. So when I stumbled across the Maslach Burnout Inventory, I immediately wanted to take it. I did, and I, I soon got my scores back. And I scored in the 98th percentile for exhaustion. And wow. something Good like... <laughs> yeah, no, really. I was, I was so <laughs> proud of myself. Um, I love standardized tests. I love scoring really high on standardized tests. And I did. 98th percentile, you know, one of my proudest accomplishments. Um, on the cynicism measure, I was kind of in the middle. I was in like the 44th percentile. And on the sense of personal accomplishments, so that one is scored in reverse. So the lower the score, the the worse the problem is. I was in the 17th percentile. Um, yeah, so in my case, my burnout, it really showed up as exhaustion and to a lesser extent, a sense of ineffectiveness, though I thought I was plenty cynical too. It's interesting because you are talking about my burnout and it seems to me there's a tension between how we see it. Do we see it as an individual problem or do we see it as a cultural problem? But you spend a lot of time in your book talking about burnout culture. How is it not just a, a personal problem, but a problem of the culture that we're in? One big way that we have a burnout culture is just the tremendous value that we place on work. The way that we identify ourselves with our jobs, the way that overwork is valorized, and the way that we seek meaning in our lives through our work. You know, it's okay to seek meaning through your work, of course, but it often seems like work is the main uh, source for us to seek meaning and significance in our lives. That's one aspect of it. And I think that the even more insidious part of burnout culture is where we so overvalue excessive work that burnout itself becomes a badge of honor. You know, you see these very unscientific studies of, you know, how whatever percentage of workers are burned out and I come across these headlines every single day. 77% of workers are burned out. And it's never clear what that means because they're not using tests like the Maslach burnout inventory. They're just asking workers, so are you burned out? And there's incredible pressure culturally to say yes. Yes, I'm burned out. Because to say that you're burned out is a way of signaling that you are an ideal worker and in a culture that overvalues work, saying you're an ideal worker is saying you are a meritorious person. In fact, you are so meritorious that you worked so hard that you ruined your life. It becomes a kind of martyrdom. You know, there's all this value on being like a martyr for your work. And I think that that's that's unhealthy. That's <laughs> an unhealthy outlook. <laughs> I asked Jonathan about the conditions of work that make burnout culture worse. Things like the gig economy, the dominance of contract work, and so on. 
burnout is experienced by the individual, but its causes are primarily in the workplace and in the culture. So there's not like something wrong with you that causes you to burn out, but rather it's that you're stretched between ideals and reality. In the era of post-war prosperity, we had solved the problem of scarcity. Industrial productivity, agricultural productivity was so great that we'd no longer have to work constantly just in order to provide the goods that society needs. We don't need quite so much work. And so if we're going to continue working, we need a new set of values. We need to look at work not just in terms of its productive capacity, but in its capacity to allow us to give ourselves identity, to find purpose in our lives, and to transcend ourselves. So those ideals have increased. But wages for workers have been pretty stagnant in the U.S. over the last 50 years. Precarity has increased. The gig economy, I mean, that is the most precarious type of labor where you can't even count on having a job in the next five minutes, never mind the next five months or five years. And work has taken over more and more of our psychological space. Those two things combined are why we feel this tremendous strain and it plays out in our individual lives as burnout. Now, this part really interested me. Justine goes on to ask Jonathan how people reacted to the part of the book where he almost says that work possesses us in the way a demon would. How does that language go down with people? I mean, so far I haven't received much pushback on this idea that the work ethic functions like a demon. The image is borrowed from the philosopher Joseph Pieper, who used it to describe the society of post-World War II Europe, which he called a total work society. So a society in which hard work is the one thing that we are certain is good. And yeah, my, my thinking is definitely very heavily influenced uh, by Pieper. And yeah, I mean, I think that it's worth it to talk about it in terms of a demon because it's this abstract, immaterial, cultural force that works on us and kind of inhabits us. You know, it feels like it's coming from inside of ourselves. It feels like it's chosen. But the work ethic, it has some good results for sure. But it often turns bad. It ends up undermining us. We end up doing things that we might have said in advance that we wouldn't want to do, like spend all our time on work, like be constantly anxious about our work and constantly anxious about our status because we think that we might not be good enough workers. And I think that that lines up pretty well with traditional Christian understandings of what the demonic is. So yes, it's kind of a metaphor that has, uh, I think, certain theological resonance. Yeah, I think um, part of why I really enjoyed your work is that you bring that theological dimension and overlay it where people aren't used to seeing it put. So you mentioned before work martyrdom. 
I was really struck by your this phrase that popped out in the book. You say that we're trapped in the Calvinist cage and that before, you know, there was this Protestant work ethic that encouraged people to work hard as a sign that they were headed for heaven. But in a society where Christianity is increasingly contested and people aren't necessarily Christian, they might still have the Protestant work ethic without actually being Protestant. Right. Are you basically saying without God, we're kind of stuffed? Do you know what I mean? Like, I think that's a really interesting thing to, to think about yeah. in this discussion. The idea that I'm borrowing here comes from another German thinker, uh, the sociologist Max Weber. And so he had theorized this Protestant work ethic as, they call it the spirit of capitalism. So it's this animating spirit that he saw in capitalist societies. And Weber connected it to Calvinist belief. But it's ultimately about anxiety. The problem is not so much a concern with the destination of your soul as this feeling of anxiety that you have. And here we are in the 21st century in secular societies, and that anxiety has not gone away. And so we might not be worried about the status of our soul, but we're worried about our status. We're worried, am I a good worker? Am I a good person? Am I talented? Am I promotion material? Those kinds of things. All right, how can I convince myself I'm a worthy person? Well, I'm going to work all the time. And if I'm always working, then I know that I'm doing something that is highly valued in my society. And so I must be a worthy person. But the problem with that is just as on Weber's account, Calvinist believers could never rest assured that they had once and for all proved themselves worthy. We in a secular society, likewise, the anxiety never goes away. There is nothing, no amount of work that ever really sets you at ease. And so, yeah, we just work and work and work and in the wrong conditions that causes tremendous harm to us. And so, right, we're in what Weber called an iron cage. But yeah, that iron cage looks like the total work society or the burnout culture. And we think we're doing the right thing. We think we're proving ourselves, but we're actually causing ourselves incredible damage. You're listening to Life and Faith, and we're hearing Justine's interview with Jonathan Malesic, the author of The End of Burnout, Why Work Drains Us and How to Build Better Lives. Now, before the break, the conversation started getting into the ways that religion can deform as well as humanize work. Now, Justine, you go on to ask Jonathan about calling, which has a particular resonance in Christian thinking. I've been known to talk about it myself. And it's the idea that God has not only called people to himself, but to activities, opportunities, relationships. Now, this can be, but isn't necessarily linked to paid work at all. Where the person can serve the common good, this is part of it, as well as feel a sense of purpose or significance. It's a very attractive idea. 
It is a really attractive idea and I love it myself, but I quoted to him the American author and essayist Anne Helen Peterson, who famously defined burnout as the millennial condition. She says calling is often an invitation to exploitation. (laughs) So she means that the passion and the purpose that you feel for work can mean that you'll do it for free and that people can exploit you on that basis. So I wanted to get Jonathan's take on that too. I think I am also critical of the notion of vocation, uh, just as Anne Helen Peterson is, for exactly these reasons. You know, it's very similar to, well, you know, do what you love and you'll never work a day in your life. You know, do what you love and success will follow or something like that. Well, follow your vocation and you're working for God. You're not working for yourself. So why do you need a raise? Why do you need shorter hours? Why wouldn't you? put in an extra shift. After all, it's your calling. So I think that that language is very dangerous. Sorry, can I push you a bit further on that? So is there nothing recoverable from the idea of calling that you might have some purpose to play and that you might even enjoy it a little bit and might ask a lot of you as well? Is there room to manoeuvre within that? Or are you so disillusioned, I suppose, with the, the meaning and the work connection that you're like, I don't want to have anything to do with it? Yeah, I would say that I'm not that disillusioned. And I think that I emphasize criticism of the concept of vocation because I think that criticism is is needed and often unheard. And so I want to push from that side to keep people from too quickly and easily saying, oh, well, you know, work is vocation and, and everything's fine. Now, if I think about my own work, as a writer and as a teacher, uh, I still teach in a university, though part-time. I do feel a sense of calling. I feel that this work does resonate in some way with who I am and what I'm best at and what I have to offer the world. I think it resonates strongly. And I think that it's work that is is doing good in the world. And in the case Well, in both of those things, both in writing and teaching, neither of them is particularly well paid. I'm perhaps the person who who really is accepting lower pay for the sake of a calling. So, yeah, yeah, I mean, I what, what I practice and what I preach are not always the same thing. Prayer and chanting from Christ in the Desert Monastery in New Mexico. Now, I'm not sure if you could make out what they were saying, but it's lines like, through our gifts and work, make the life of your church more fruitful. And may the life and labor of all religious promote the welfare of the human family. Jonathan's painted this picture of a total work society where dignity belongs to those who work. And he says that to find countercultural inspiration, we have to look to the fringes of the mainstream. And that's how he ended up at Christ in the Desert Monastery. I wanted to find models of living that were as far away from burnout culture as possible without leaving the United States. You have to go pretty far. <laughs> and I found one model 
in a Roman Catholic Benedictine monastery in the desert of northern New Mexico. For listeners outside the United States, New Mexico is this beautiful mountainous desert state uh, that is is filled with canyons and, and wonderful wilderness. And these monks live in a community and their monastery is 13 miles down a dirt road from the nearest highway. Uh, they, of course, have well water, they generate their own electricity, and they're increasingly growing more of their own food, though, you know, they can't grow quite enough in that environment to fully sustain themselves. But the most important thing to them is communal prayer. So they spend five or six hours a day in communal prayer and an additional hour or so often in private prayer. Then, you know, there's time for meals and other ordinary stuff. And that doesn't leave a lot of time for work. They need to work, of course, because they need to sustain their community. They need to cook. They need to clean. They need to cultivate their crops. They need to sort through paperwork. They just need to do all this stuff. But they don't have a lot of time to do it. And so their day begins at about 4 a.m. with several hours of communal prayer. And then at 9 a.m. begins their work period. It lasts for about three and a half hours. And then at 1240, the chapel bell rings. And they go once again to the chapel where they continue what they call offices, their office of prayer. And they don't go back to work in the afternoon. There's just other stuff that they have to do uh, for the rest of the day. And I asked one of the monks who had been an attorney prior to entering the monastery, what you do when you feel like your work is undone. You know, that bell rings and you're in the middle of a task and it isn't finished. And he said, you get over it. And, and your jaw drops right, the floor. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that was mind-blowing because in the secular world, you know, we never get over it. You know, we don't get over our work at the end of the day. We're, we never feel like we're finished. And he said, no, well, there's, there's something else to do. There's something that's more important. Like that, to me, is the opposite of burnout culture. It is a recognition that something is more important than work. And work exists to help to sustain ourselves. And it, it exists in the, in the spaces in between, the stuff that's really important. In our ordinary lives, you know, we flip that around. I mean, we try to squeeze in the rest of life around our work. Yeah, I was really struck by a, um, a phrase that you had in the book. You write, something must be sacred so that work can be profane. So beautiful. And I guess the question to ask here is, do communities of faith have a surprising edge here? If they can avoid, you know, slipping off and making calling the, the be-all and end-all, which can become oppressive as we've already already established. But yeah, do communities of faith, they, they have an advantage, surely? They could, yeah. Though I think that they very often squander that advantage. You know, you look in so many religious traditions there is a weekly day of rest built in. In practice, religious people don't observe that especially well. 
it's very easy to do a bit of work on the Sabbath or, you know, for Christians on a Sunday. Communities of faith have, have that potential advantage. The other potential advantage is they have supposedly an orientation toward something higher. They have a, a set of values that ought to enable them to subordinate work. In practice, you know, that often doesn't pan out very well. And the third thing that communities of faith ought to have as an advantage is that, well, they have community. They have a built-in social structure where, at least the way it's supposed to be, is the work you do is not uh, determinative of your status in the community. You are a worthy person regardless, just by virtue of being part of this community. And I think that if religious communities really lived all of that out, I mean, it would be totally transformative. It would, it would be this massive rejection of burnout culture. In practice, though, it doesn't work that way. <laughs> yes. In practice, uh, probably the religious people are as controlled by the demon of work as, as anyone else, I suspect. Right. Let me ask you, since leaving your job, what have you discovered about leisure and rest and hobbies for yourself? I mean, you do write about the experience of others in the book, but what about for you? Because, you know, as someone who the demon of work often assaults, I don't know how to rest very well. And so I wondered if you could share me some of your experiences with that. Yeah, this is another area where I preach a little better than I practice. And I think that I'm not alone among nonfiction writers in trying to convince primarily myself with my argument. But when I was a full-time academic, it was my total identity. I did not have real hobbies. Virtually all of my friends were work friends. I did not have any space between myself and my work. Since quitting that job and rebuilding my career, I have a little bit more space between myself and my work. For one thing, no one thing I do totally defines even my career. If my teaching is not going so great, you know, I could work on an article and vice versa. They both can kind of be a, a check on each other in a way. I do think it's a little easier for me to rest and to set work aside now than it once was. You know, it was toward the end of my academic career that I started to develop hobbies that weren't, they, it ended up not being quite enough. But I've been an off and on ice hockey player and I joined a team and I did that once a week and I loved it. And the other thing that was really, it was a wonderful hobby, um, was drawing. I loved my drawing class. It was this collection of people who, you know, we weren't there to impress each other by our careers, but we were there to learn and it was marvelous. My other hobby is bicycling. Uh, and I've I've gotten kind of more into that in the last few years. So, yeah, I mean, the point is that there's got to be other stuff besides work. And slowly I've been able to find that. But it's hard, the pressure to to prove myself. You know, as a freelance writer, there's always more I could be doing. And I just have to, I have to be okay. I have to get over that worry. 
Yeah, well, you still live in a culture of total work, even if you don't personally want to live by it at the same time. We've heard a lot about the Great Resignation in America, people leaving their jobs. How confident are you that this might represent the start of an adjusted relationship to work? Because really, what you're talking about that is needed is a systemic overhaul. It's not just going to be cured by finding hobbies for yourself or sleeping more. So how confident are you that the Great Resignation might herald something new? Yeah, I'm pretty hopeful because everyone's work has been upset over the last two years in one way or another. Unemployment or working from home or your work suddenly becoming so much more intense and frankly dangerous. And at the moment, workers have a lot of market power on the labor market. And I think the great resignation is a sign of that. What I hope is that workers are recognizing not only that they have market value, but that they have human value. Because that market value is eventually going to go away. Like, that's just kind of the nature of economics, is that eventually the market will catch up to them. But it's going to take that recognition of human value in order for lasting changes to occur. It's a rethinking of the place that work ought to hold in our lives. So I hope this process of the great resignation and coming out of the pandemic where in the United States, a million people have died as a result. And just that tremendous loss, I hope, has helped us to realize that our lives are, are very fragile and that there's more to them than labor and productivity. And so I hope that we'll start to think that, well, yeah, work is fine, but it doesn't have to be everything. It doesn't define my value as a human being. This has been Life and Faith from CPX with me, Simon Smart and Justine Toe. Now, we've had two years and counting, maybe, of the pandemic, where we've had blurred boundaries between work and life, cancelled holidays, even staycations ruined by COVID. I know, Simon, you can identify with this. So I'm absolutely sure that this chat with Jonathan Malesic has really resonated. If it's helped give some language about what you've been feeling, then please do let other people know about this episode. And check out his book, The End of Burnout, Why Work Drains Us and How to Build Better Lives. I'll link to it and his newsletter where you can keep up with his work. Next week. I think this is often forgotten, but it's basic to the public sphere because the public sphere isn't just people shouting from different positions of dogmatic certainty. It is people engaged in more nuanced conversations where each is humble enough to know that he or she doesn't have the whole truth. <laughs>